Well, I guess uh, you'll know the kind of scene on the TV, maybe on the fil- in a film as well. You know, the man is there, and he's every, fig- every feature of his body is utterly chiselled, and he's ready, and he's eager to, to please his love. Oh, he's not grumpy, is he? No, he's never grumpy on a film. Uh, you know, he's not too tired, too sleepy from work, never just not in the mood. You know, and you know he—he's never out playing football with his mates. You know, and his wife's at home having prepared a nice dinner, and uh, you know, all got ready for him. And now he's gone out and played football. Now that never happens in the films at all. Likewise, uh, the women uh, in films and TV—you know—they're always perfectly manicured and made up and fresh-faced, always wanting, always satisfied, always ready. And it's never. The situation where, you know, they're feeling a bit down, a bit grumpy, a bit too shy, a bit too self-conscious. You know, you know they've, they've never spent hours kind of choosing an outfit and just not ever getting to one that they're really happy with and then they go out feeling a little bit... That never happens in the films. And we can say, yeah, we understand that. We see that that is not the reality. Uh, but a few questions, if I may, to begin with uh, today... You know, if you are married, uh, have your um, expectations been skewed and perhaps heightened to an unhealthy level uh, that actually crushes you when reality strikes? What if you're not married? Yeah, have you formed an unrealistic ideal of marital intimacy? And perhaps in so doing, have you sidelined every other way that God has provided for us to both express and receive intimacy in ways that honour him and satisfy our desires. And for all of us, whether married or single, have we elevated this wonderful God-given gift of sexual intimacy to an unhealthy level, making it an object of worship rather than an expression of worship? We have over just uh, three talks in Song of Songs. Uh, A few weeks back, we uh, looked at the last one. We've examined what, essentially, what true romance is, what true love is. And throughout this book, an amazing book it is, we've seen this continual cycle. And let me just remind us of it. We saw that that kind of longing and anticipation to begin with. Uh, An inviting of love, followed by a waiting, a patient waiting, And then lastly, a fulfilment at its right time with the right person. And that cycle falls very much against, doesn't it? What we see is the instant gratification in our culture. It requires patience before consummation, commitment before intimacy, love in the place of lust. Um, and as we saw from Psalm 1 last week, you know, the, the, the blessed life, the prosperous life, the God honoring life. Uh, Well, that is promised here, hope-filled life in the place of mere existence. The poetry of this book uh, has taken us, hasn't it, into the the hearts and the minds of essentially two lovers. Uh, A man and a woman who have poetically kind of walked us through their love relationship. And there's been highs, but there's also been some lows as well, hasn't there? And their willingness to wait, as we've seen, a patient waiting, uh, their desire to honour God in that wait has actually heightened uh, their pleasure and their joy in each other. 
And I, I don't know if you noticed, I didn't really spell it out last time we, we were in the passage, but have you ever noticed that is always the way with God's way? Because he does everything for our good. It may require a difficult and frustrating wait, but his way may even require a, a painful um, time of, of, of being refined, chipping away at our ungodliness to make us more like Jesus. Yes, that may happen, but God's way is always the best way. As we've seen here, we've seen that controlled anticipation and, and joyful and careful inviting of love between two people, uh, patient waiting for the right time with the right person. And all of that leads to and contributes to a consummation, a fulfillment of their love in a satisfying, God-honouring love. Uh, we left our couple, uh, a couple of weeks back, essentially at the height of their love. Flip back to chapter 4, verse 16, would you, very, very briefly. Ali, I wonder, could you turn down channel 1 just a fraction? I'm sort of ringing everywhere. Chapter 4, verse 16, just have a look at it there. Um, I'm not going to go through the language, it's poetic, remember. Uh, her garden has been opened. Not too much down, but there we go. A garden's been opened. And that is essentially poetic speak for their sexual union now as man and wife. And they both delight in the consummation of their love. Just hear the man, how he responds to it. Chapter 5, verse 1. You can read it. Have a look down. Every image that he points to there is just saying, I am totally satisfied in my wife. But... Now that we move on to chapter 5, verse 2 and following, uh, notice the book doesn't end there. This is not a linear line uh, of progression, kind of going up and up and up in, in just satisfied love. Uh, no, look what happens. It's not as the film scripts go. Uh, you know, the continuing romance, day by day, they all always hold hands. They're always, they always watch every sunset together and everything's perfect. This is not... The happily ever after. What we actually see, and it's point one on your sheets, we see the reality of frustration. Remember, a couple are now married, just been previous verses, all excitable, everything's great, all satisfied. And now, verse two, this is her speaking, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? Have a, I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening, and my heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and, his, and my hands dripping with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh, on the handles of the bolt, I opened for my beloved. But my beloved had left, he was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city and they beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you. If you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. See, the reality is, this is not happily ever after. It isn't here, 
and it isn't in any relationship, especially as you get older and things become more difficult. Uh, and before we see how kind of this uh, applies to us, it might be worth us just kind of grasp what's going on here. Uh, this is poetic language. We need to try and work out what's happening. Now, just let's just cast our eyes down. Look at verse 2, if you can. Uh, she's sleeping there. Well, kind of. She, uh, she slept, but her heart was awake. She's maybe kind of daydreaming, uh, kind of lying down, you know, that half-awake state, as we know what, what that feels like. And we know there that her heart is restless. But then she hears someone at the door. And her lover's there, he's locked out. Probably the door is locked, he's been out for her protection, but it could be, and we're not sure, it could be that they've just they had some kind of argument and she's locked him out. We just don't know. Once again, the man isn't proud though, is he? Look at verse 2. He's willing to tell his love what he thinks of her and how much he wants her. He's tired, his hair is wet. I mean, he's been outside, probably working. But now he comes back, he's ready. He's ready for her. He wants to enjoy being with her. And look how she responds, verse 3. She knows he wants her and to be with her. But what does she say in verse 3? I'm sorry, I'm tired, basically. Uh, I've got a bit of a headache uh, kids have been a nightmare today. You wouldn't believe it. Uh, you, you wouldn't believe how busy my day has been. I really can't. I'm afraid not. I've taken off my road. I'm, I'm afraid you're not getting anything. He tries again. Look at it in verse 4. This time he puts his hand through the lock. And now I haven't a clue how that works. And I don't think any scholar I've read has a clue how that works. But it's clear he wants her so much. And it's his desire for his love that stirs this woman. You know, despite her initially kind of saying, you know, I can't be bothered, uh, she, her desire, his desire for her stirs her heart. And so verse 5, we, she, she gets up and she's already in and gets excited to be with him. And verse 5, she opens for her beloved uh, and now she wants to be intimate with him. And then you get to verse 6 and he's gone. He's scarpered. They missed each other, you see, and the timing was wrong. When she was ready for him, he, you know, so when he was ready for her, then she, she wasn't. And when she then was ready for him, he'd gone. He'd like gone back somewhere else. How does she feel about the departure? Well, it says here, her, her heart sank. Literally, the words there, I mean, it's much, much stronger. Uh, it's, it's very much like close to, she nearly died inside. She'd gone from, oh, not bothered, to very excited, really want, and then crushing back the next moment. And we can imagine the same is true for the man here as well. And so great is the pain in her heart. What does she do? She becomes irrational and reckless and places herself out in the city, a silly place for a single woman to be in that culture, in that time, and she puts herself in danger. She's picked up by the watchmen who were essentially okay in the previous chapters, but now they beat her and they bruise her and they take away her cloak. Now, many scholars would say that's abuse in the language that's being used here. She goes to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, and she asks them to tell her lover that she's just faint with love. Now, that, that's what's going on. Uh, but really what's going on, it, it, this is just reality. 
One moment we see this wonderfully intimate couple, married couple, the, the scene changes and now they're just feeling the sting of frustration. Things aren't working out as they'd imagined. Now we like to pretend, don't we? We like to think that uh, you know, frustration doesn't happen for newlyweds. We, we probably can see that later on in married life you know, things might get a little bit tougher and so on. But reality, well, it can be, but not always. Very frustrating and difficult. I remember a friend sharing with me uh, a few years back. He'd been married for about seven years um, at that time. And his wife and he couldn't have sex without it being extraordinarily painful for her. She had an operation and things got a little bit better. But it was awful. And very, very painful. Not, Not that they had imagined that on their wedding day at all. Frustration can linger throughout a relationship. Men and women have different biological clocks and therefore men and women may want more or less intimacy at different times in their lives. People struggle with illness, problems with desire or self-confidence. All of these things I was reading this week of, uh, in, in something I was reading, uh, they quoted a study in America saying uh, that less than 10% of couples do not experience desire problems in their married lives. That is, the vast, 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 vast majority of people will experience at some point problems of desire. Simple points before we move on, if I may. Don't kid yourself. Movies are movies, and reality is reality. I think we all know that. And therefore, it's sometimes frustrating. Yes, of course, I I guess newlyweds will always have a bit of a high peak of of just joy and intimacy and so on, and that's right and is good, but it's in, in... It's important to realise that it's impossible to maintain that, and it's okay. The greater concern would be if if we saw the woman here in verse 6, and it read like this. Look at verse 6, and I'll I'll slightly change it. It would be more concerning if it was like this. I opened for my beloved, and my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart, well, rejoiced, because I wanted to finish off the programme that I was watching on Netflix. I'd had a shower ready and I didn't want him all over me because he smells a bit. You get the picture. The reality of frustration. Secondly, the power of protection. Now we'll see here in this uh, long section uh, that both the men, the man and the woman speak to protect their relationship. They speak to protect it in their own hearts but also in front of their friends. Now, we've seen their friends come into the scene uh, in verse 9. Have a look at it. Their friends are speaking here. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? Now, you have to remember this woman is in a very dangerous place. But her so-called f- friends essentially ask by what they're saying there. They essentially say, is he really worth it? That's what they're saying. Now, a good friend should be the one who will do everything they can to build and encourage the relationship, the marriage. But here, these women who had previously enjoyed, if you flip back to uh, chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see them. Oh, they're supping on the Prosecco back at the wedding. They're absolutely loving it then, enjoying in the celebrations. They're there for the good times. But now, when it's difficult in chapter 5, verse 9, what are they doing? Well, they're not being friends at all. 
We must be very aware of fair-weather friends, especially when you're fighting for your love or thinking about love. A few years back, I've mentioned this before, I had a couple of friends who were um, caught in an affair. It was very sad and a difficult time. What has transpired, though, over the months that have followed, what was incredibly sad to me was that I knew a number of their other friends, individuals, and I say so-called friends, to be honest. They had suspicions, and they didn't say anything. And they are not friends. Don't look for wisdom from people who won't challenge you. Or who have the same kind of problems as you. When you need advice in relationships, go to someone who will love you and that will hurt you. And who will point you to the word of God, however painful that is for you. Even if that means a good friend will dare to sacrifice your relationship with them to point you to the truth. Because that's what you do when you love someone. We don't need fickle or fair with the friends. We need faithful friends. Of course, how we do that and how we say that with gentleness and love is really important. But here the content is so, so critical. Importantly, look at how this woman responds to these daughters of Jerusalem. It's really interesting. She protects her relationship by speaking about her love. He's not there. They've gone through this frustration and difficulty. And look what she says. I'm going to run through it. So just cast your eyes down from verse 10 through to the end of the chapter. Literally, you know, he's saying, he's radiant. You think he's not worth it. I'll tell you what, he's radiant. He's ruddy. I'm not sure what that means, but I quite like it. And if you want to call me ruddy, that's fine. I'm okay with that. You know, he's outstanding amongst 10,000 men. To her, in her mind and in her heart, he is her exclusive love. And no one compares. That's what she's saying. In verse 11 to 16, she's literally describing, isn't she, from head to toe in near demigod-like terms. Wives, try this with your husbands. You know, her summary in verse 16 kind of sums her up. She is altogether lovely. Slip that in the Valentine's card in a few days. That might work. Uh, Her friends may not see it, but she is telling her friends of her love. And in so doing, she fixes her friends' attitudes and protects her love and attraction for her man. Think about how you speak about your love when they're not around. Or if you've had an argument... You know, you know I like listening out in coffee shops. I always listen to conversations in coffee shops. I was listening to a, a little group of women and they were just killing their husbands to each other. I just wanted to stand in the middle and say, how dare you? Don't be so stupid. I didn't, but you know, that, was, that was my inner monologue at the time. And I, Anyway, you get the point. What does this woman do? Three things, I think. She honours him even when he's not around. She speaks of a love, and that draws her to him. And in doing that, she protects her own love and instructs her friends. If you're struggling in a relationship and someone criticizes your love, you know, a friend says to you, why bother? You know, oh, he's so this or so that. Take them down. 
in whatever way that you feel that you should. That's your job. And it will protect your love in your heart. Speak to instruct yourself and your friends of your love. And notice how honest this woman is about her struggles. But she doesn't then go and post them on Facebook. That's a bit of a social media thing at the time, isn't it? She's honest and intimate without being common and smutty. And all to protect her love. It's interesting, the man does a similar thing. We're going to miss out a couple of verses. We'll come back to them in a moment. But flip over the page uh, to verse 4 through to verse 13. Very similarly now, the man speaks... Uh, and remember, there's still a part here, verse 4 to 9, he, he kind of repeats what he said uh, back in the chapter 4. But now, he adds a few extras. Now, in Hebrew poetry, repetition like this is important to note because it's basically like putting a bold or an underline or you know, you know, highlighting a section. You're saying, I'm repeating it for emphasis, and that's what he's doing here. And so we hear about her teeth again, her hair, her cheeks, and all the other stuff as well. He's using the same lines that worked in the previous poem. He expressed his love for his, uh, for his love, for his woman, and he, it worked. She loved it. It's a good reminder, isn't it? You know, men, if you make your wives blush by saying something particularly lovely, or your girlfriend's blush by some, saying something particularly lovely, don't park that line. Remember it. Make a note of it. If you forget things quickly, use it again and again and again. Don't think it's sufficient to just say once, you know, uh, something once. Silence for, for many people, especially women, silence for women will make them feel that you don't think that way now. Uh, you know, I told you, you know, to say something like this to, to someone you love is that I told you you look radiant on your wedding day 10 years ago. Um, you know, that just doesn't suffice, does it? It's not good enough. And the man here actually adds to what he previously said. It's progression, not regression. So in verse 4 and verse 8 and verse 9, he extends the descriptions of his wife that he said back in chapter 4. So now she's as beautiful as Tirzah. Tirzah was the, um, the city, uh, capital city of the northern kingdom of the tribes uh, for 50 years. It's a beautiful place. He then picks up on Jerusalem as well and essentially saying, you are the capital city of my affections. She's majestic. Looking at verse, in verse 5 as he... It's just overwhelming him. In verse 8, he puts her above all others. In verse 9, now verse 9 is really important, I think. Something very important happens here. Because now she is, and the phrase is, my perfect one. Now that is a virtuous word. That isn't, I like your hair. That is, I love you and who you are. Like the woman in a virtue in Proverbs 31. She's the woman who fears the Lord and therefore is to be praised. And he's saying a very similar thing here. Much more than just her physique. He's saying, I love you. You godly woman, I love you. And that's a challenge, isn't it? For both, of it, both men and women, I think. For men, we've got to work out what, you know, what do we look for in women. Song of Songs is clear. We must be attracted in that physical sense. But at the same time, it, that, that thing will not delight us. It won't keep going in that same way. We must delight in something we can always delight in. As he is here. Her virtue, she's his perfect one. 
The man, like the woman earlier, though, is protecting his love. Look down at verse 10 through to 13. There's a bit of a conversation going on here. Again, the friends speak of the woman. She's fair. She's majestic. Uh, And the man then carefully, very carefully, speaks about his intimacy with his love in verse 11 and verse 12. And the friends then take it a little bit of a step too far. Look at verse 13. They're in awe of her beauty, but now they want to gaze upon her. Which is to say they want to look at her in a lustful way. If another man, you see, speaks about your love in a lustful, inappropriate way, again, take them down. (coughs) Sort them out. Lovingly correct them. Uh, The man here is quick to question the other man in verse 13. Why would you gaze in that way? Essentially he's asking, hey, hey, why are you looking at my wife like that? No, you stop it. He's rightly jealous and he is angered that they would look on his wife in that way. And by asking in this way, he's protecting her honour and her beauty. He's saying to his friends, there are limits and you cannot gaze on my wife in that way. That is for my eyes only and for my satisfaction only. When we say, what we say and what we allow others to say of our loves, uh, our wives, protects, doesn't it? We must guard and honour our relationships in those ways. And if someone oversteps, for example, with a compliment at work, you need to make sure that they leave that conversation understanding that they have stepped over a line. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. You need to work out appropriately in a work situation how you do it. But if someone oversteps the line, you need to make sure that they leave the conversation understanding that they have stepped over a line. This man protects her and their relationships, even in her absence again, like the woman. And he speaks to draw her to his heart, not push her away. And this reminds us, doesn't it, we need friends to help protect our relationships, not hinder. How we speak about our spouses in their absence will instruct friends, and it will instruct our children too, won't it? Parents, we must instruct our sons and our daughters how to speak and honour those that they love in the the future. They will see it in you, and you must instruct them. Make sure that they speak with respect And show them what it is. When someone walks in the room, they stand to greet them. All the normal, courteous things that they will expect and you will want them to do when they grow older. Teach them how to listen, how to shake hands properly, to show general courtesy to people of the opposite sex. Tell them what you love about your spouse without being creepy. Especially when they get to teenagers like my boys. They can't cope with that at all anymore. So, but use words to protect your relationships. So we've seen the, the reality the frustration, the power of protection. And then we come to, lastly, very quickly, the delight of satisfaction. Have a look with me. at just um, a couple of verses. Chapter, two, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 there. You'll look in verse 1. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for 
uh, him with you. Then my beloved has gone down to the garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Now we recognise it here that they're still not together. But something has changed. Now she knows where he is. Given the poetic language, whatever it is, it, it settles her heart at this point. He's not back in the garden of, uh, well, no, he is back to a degree, in the garden of her intimacy, in her heart and her mind. But most importantly here, in verse 3, look at it. It's a repeated refrain of the book. She restates their commitment to each other. The order is right again, isn't it? Commitment, intimacy. I am my beloved's and he is mine comes before he browses among the lilies, which is a kind of intimate picture of their love. You see the point? We renew commitment in order to renew and restore romance. And if you're struggling, renew commitment. Restate the vows that you have made. And if you have problems with intimacy and romance, renew that commitment to your love. If you're wondering about a relationship, you know, if you're you know, single and you're thinking, shall I, shall I... It, How's things going? Better to cut intimacy and romance and talk commitment first. Because it will expose what matters in the relationship. And if you're really struggling right now, and I can imagine a room this way, that may be the case. If you're really struggling, don't run and flee. Begin by renewing commitment. Now that sounds all dry and boring, uh, but see the response of the man. Just flip over to chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. Again, we're going to flick through this very, very fast. He just can't keep quiet, can he? He delights about the satisfaction he finds in his love. This time, if you notice, just cast your eyes down. He works the opposite way. He's changing up things here a bit. He goes from toe up to head this time. It's overwhelming, isn't it? The praise of his love. Her love alone satisfies. The exclusivity of this is the thing that should stun us. It's her. It's his commitment to her that, uh, that kind of pushes all of these praises. Now, we've seen the reality of frustration, the power of protection, the delight of satisfaction. In some ways, we've seen all of this in the context of this marriage relationship. But I hope we've all seen that there's much that we can all learn Let's think about the reality of frustration to begin with, can we? Whether we're in marriage or longing for marriage, we can all find ourselves discontent, can't we? And longing for something that we, can, we can't even have or long to have. Frustration and discontentment are realities in our frustrated and imperfect world. I think we often make it much more harder for ourselves... Than we ought to. And it often happens when we make good things into godlike things and we end up worshipping those things. As a result, we end up seeking pleasure in all the wrong things that don't ultimately satisfy and make us drift from God. Of course, we're made in God's image. We're made for joy and satisfaction in relationships. But how can we expect to be satisfied if the object we find satisfaction in is temporary? We must find our ultimate satisfaction and pleasure in God and in God alone. 
Of course, when we do that, we'll find that other lesser pleasures, like relationships and marriage, will fit into their right place. When we put God first, beautiful things actually become more beautiful because we enjoy them as God intended them to be enjoyed. Therefore, if we find ourselves in a frustrating situation, married or unmarried, let's remember that is the reality of life now before we meet Christ face to face. But that realisation should point us to, the, to find satisfaction in eternal pleasures. The eternal pleasures of God that have been revealed to us in the Lord Jesus through the word and can be uh, basically implanted in our hearts by his spirit. Don't do nothing though if you find yourself frustrated in this life. Where should we look? We should, of course, look to the beauty of the cross, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He removed, to to remove, if you like, the frustration that we might feel now, but will ultimately remove it on the final day. But also, as as we gaze at the beauty of the cross, we also then remember that in that moment, he removed all the guilt and the shame, the burden of our sin, which so many of us are carrying. I hope you realise that the image isn't too crass here, but he is our perfect husband as he stretches out his arms on the cross to remove all the guilt and the shame for our sin. I hope you realise that Jesus will never, ever let you down. He washes us clean as we read his word and the spirit works in us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians tells us. Christ, our husband, makes us beautiful and radiant and he lifts us from frustration to a satisfied life as his bride. And you may be feeling frustrated and burdened because you feel unclean, you've, you've messed up. I guess many of us have in this area in our lives. And what can you do? Hang your head and be resigned for life, uh, you know, feeling guilty and shameful for the rest of your your days on this earth? That's one option. But can I really push you to say, that is a terrible option. Rather look to the grace and the forgiveness found in Christ and in Christ alone. Lift your head up. And know who you are in him. Forgiven. Cleansed. And made new. Jesus can take all of our guilt and shame. If we truly repent and put our trust in him. And give ourselves to him. In the intimate ways that this picture points us to. You can leave today. Utterly, utterly liberated. Washed. And beautiful in his sight. Just practically, maybe, maybe some of you just need to find a friend. And what I mean by that is, you need to find a friend who says that you trust, that you're willing to share some of that stuff with, and who won't beat you up, but who will wrap their arms around you and pray with you and point you to the Lord Jesus, where you'll find his grace and forgiveness. Let's think about protection just for one moment. How do we do that? We've seen it here in two occasions that they protect their relationship through speech. 
They protect their hearts and their loves through speech. So speak. If we're to protect our ultimate relationship with Christ, then speak. Speak of Christ. Speak to Christ in prayer. He's your groom and he loves you to bits. He loves to hear your voice. In a sense, the, the, the practical outworking of speaking and protecting is essentially to remove all rivals from your heart and your mind and your, any of your relationships. Get them all away. Whether that's what you watch on TV, whether that's porn, whoever it is, an, an inappropriate relationship, remove all rivals. Get it out. Lastly, think of satisfaction. Look for someone who will satisfy you for life. Who stirs your heart for a lifetime, not just a moment. Ultimately, of course, that is the Lord Jesus. But when you, if you're not married and you're looking for someone, don't compromise. Look for someone who is your, going to be your perfect one. Who rejoice in their godliness. I think I've said enough. I'm going to pray as we close. Again, of course... Some of the stuff we've been saying, some of the stuff we've been looking at, there will be hurts and there will be sadnesses. Can I just say a moment of quiet? Why don't we think and bring those to the Lord? But I also want us to pray and ask for forgiveness and to know his cleansing, washing love. Let's have a moment of quiet if we can.